0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Anthony Maine, founder and managing director of The Distance, a company that develops intuitive mobile apps solutions for iOS and Android platforms. Anthony, hello. Hi, come on. Uh, Well, thank you very much for coming on the program. Uh, This uh, is obviously a very odd time for everyone. So before we actually get into the leadership content of the Leaders' Council podcast, let's touch on the ongoing COVID outbreak. How has this affected your organization?
1: Well, it's affected us in different ways. Um, While it it had a hugely negative effect on a lot of our peers and other companies, We've actually seen a lot of productivity in, in the way it's worked and brought our team a bit of it closer together.
0: And what would you attribute that to?
1: Um, well, we had a close-knit team in the first instance, and they have found that they've been able to be more supportive just in the general circumstances, knowing that everybody else is, is struggling a little bit. They, they pulled together and really focused on, on working as a team, and working remotely hasn't really changed that.
0: And when we talk uh, about the the post-COVID reality and how businesses will look, do you feel uh, that uh, your organization will ever look the same again as it did prior to this?
1: Uh, I think that we're going to be slightly stronger. Uh, We've we got a bit more resilient to, to what's going on in the world. We've we'll put certain measures in place to allow us to do things remotely a little bit better. So I think we're, the impact it will have will actually be a positive one longer term. We, we've seen already a lot of uplift in business, and as our predominant business is, is digital transformation and creating digital solutions, uh, there's been a, a massive increase uh, in our in our world because of businesses needing support in this space.
0: Right. Well, we should move on to the subject of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question: What does the word leader mean to you?
1: Well, I like to think of myself as a good leader. So, what does it mean to me? Someone that uh, uh, inspires our team, I guess. I like to think that I I have the best interest of the team at heart, and whilst. It is my business. I, I like to lead the business with everybody's thoughts and position in rather than just being me at the head of it.
0: And when it comes to your day-to-day leadership style, what sort of uh, form does that take? How would you describe your leadership style?
1: I have a very um, close and more social relationship day-to-day with our team. I try to be a very supportive leader. Um, No, I I am obviously the head of the company, so I I do still have to have an air of authority and and lead by example, but um, I can still do that with a sense of humour and uh, supportive nature as much as I can.
0: And where would you say your leadership style derived from? Did you have a particular role model or were you shaped more by circumstance?
1: I guess it was the sort of opposite effect of a role model. Uh, before I stepped out and started running an agency, I was oppositely inspired to create a business where I was led by um, the way I wanted to do things, the way I wanted our customers to feel, the way I, I wanted our staff to feel, not necessarily the experiences I'd had uh, the number of agencies I'd worked for in the past.
0: And when it comes uh, to that experience, did you feel that that the negative experience you had with some uh, leaders who would be deemed as bad leaders put even more fire in you than even an interaction with a good one?
1: I guess so. I I, I shouldn't be too critical. I had poor leaders. I I was only one that I was ever really very critical of. I just always thought I could do things better. I could see ways to improve or deliver a better experience for both our customers and our staff that I felt both parties deserved in the way we did things. Some of them got a little bit too commercial and a little bit too corporate, and we lost that sense of uh, partnership in our relationship with our customers.
0: Now, when it comes to the difference between a good leader, a bad leader, an effective leader, a non-effective leader, what sort of traits identify each one of these?
1: I think all leaders, no matter what style, have to be able to listen. They need to be able to engage with with the, their peers, sorry, not necessarily their peers, but their, uh, their subordinates and then the people below them. They have to have, find a good communication channel to allow information about what's happening in the business, how people are feeling, especially at a time like this. They need to be able to take all these sort of things into effect and make make critical judgments based upon as much information as possible and then do the reverse and make it incredibly transparent about what those decisions are and why they're making them in order to get people to support their decision-making process.
0: Now, if we were to uh, identify for maybe young people who are about to enter the world of work, some good examples that they could follow of of leadership uh, that they may see from the heads of large corporations or anyone in the public sector, what sort of names would you be uh, throwing out there?
1: Well, I guess it's very, very diversified, depending on the industry. I mean, you look at the likes of Elon Musk, He seems to be a great leader because he's incredibly innovative, Mm. but he's a little bit eccentric, but then engages in a very personal manner. So it's very difficult. The likes of Bill Gates used to be a huge figurehead for me when I was younger. And even more so now, you look at his philanthropic work that he does today, he's incredibly inspiring still. And yet, his business is still one of the biggest tech companies in the world.
0: And what is it about his leadership style that is so appealing
1: I think he came across incredibly down to earth in all the interviews and um, and the way he went about his manner. He, he, his personality comes through. He didn't come across fake. He came across very real, very transparent, and you felt like you knew him and you could understand exactly what he was trying to tell people.
0: Absolutely. Now, if we talk about younger people entering the workforce – uh, what sort of skills do you think that they need to have on day one and what ones can they learn along the way once they get in post?
1: I think the skills fall into two two categories. You've got the actual technical skills they need for the job. A lot of that can be trained. What they need to be able to do is is, is be a great asset for a company. They need to be quite flexible when they're young. They need to be able to to move and shape what they do, but, with the with as much gusto and intention to to show that they're they're a part of the team and willing to help out where they can. Once they've got that, they can earn their place and get access to the better tools and jobs and roles that that their skill set will slowly build towards.
0: And do you feel that they are being prepared well by the education establishment?
1: Oh, that's a, a, a hard question to ask, answer. Um, I guess it varies. I think the education departments have a tough job. They're trying to create incredibly well-rounded individuals, which sort of solves what I previously said. But when it comes to more technical projects and technical roles, I think the roles aren't specific enough, and they're creating not enough. The students aren't getting enough actual hands-on experience of real-world tools just because the cycle for education and program is so slow that it, it can't keep up with the technology changes in the modern world.
0: Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, our time together is uh, drawing to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months look like for The Distance?
1: Well, we're excited. We've been growing. We've seen an uptake in demand. We've, we've employed four people in the last month, despite what a lot of our peers are doing. A lot of people are much more focused on using technology, specifically apps, to to solve real world and business problems. So hopefully we'll be one of the first ports of call when uh, they're looking for a partner to help them on that journey.
0: Fantastic. Well, Anthony, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program today. It's been a pleasure having you here. And of course, we'll have to have you back when things get back to normal. But for now, Anthony, thank you. Great. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. That was Anthony Main, founder and managing director of The Distance. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is my exclusive interview with our chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett, welcome.
2: Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you.
0: Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going?
2: Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, declined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, Uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff, and of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important.
0: Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak... And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the
2: the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool.
0: Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react. Uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages?
2: I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential Cobra meetings what I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it so looking back I think Boris himself probably thinks god I Wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today.
0: Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly
2: readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, Mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioural science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh,
0: Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary?
2: Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real on the back of that but it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics and of course we we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. People have criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy sh- cut, uh, shut shutdown, um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS or what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I have put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, Mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well.
0: So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare.
2: Yes, and to do so on different levels. I think, again, thinking of... Thinking global but acting local, we need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think.